the Les Dawson of dance. We're not very sex positive these days. By leaves, about leaves, maybe not for leaves. So I would go out looking like an extreme Adam man. The thinking man's custard pie. Catherine, Catherine, one, two, three. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. Right in front of me right now, I've got a copy of Cools Out by 80s rubber-faced funny man Phil Cool, which includes an Arthur C. Clarke parody called The Weird World of the Totally Unexplained, featuring case studies from the British Organisation for Noting Kinetic Events and Recording Spookies, or Bonkers for short, which include the very senior policeman who heard voices, a not remotely dated satire of controversial Greater Manchester Police Chief James Anderton, the miracle worker of Macclesfield, a cat that moves a bit, and the Vindaloo Triangle, where you can regularly find people slumped in mysterious trances after eating extremely hot curries. When broadcaster Georgie Jameson appeared on Looks Unfamiliar, however, she wanted to talk about a show that made both Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World and Cool It seem entirely explainable in comparison. Indoor League is extraordinary. It used to come on at lunch times. It was Yorkshire Television that made it. And we're talking 1970s here. I don't know whether it went into the 80s, but it was certainly 70s. And it was the sort of thing that you would watch if you were off sick from school. Because, quite frankly, there'd been school programmes all morning and there was nothing else apart from this and Farmhouse Kitchen. Indoor League was introduced by Fred Truman. He'd have a pint in one... This is lunchtime television, right? He'd have a pint in a proper pint glass with a handle and a pipe. He was smoking a pipe. And he was regularly, I believe, voted Pipe Smoker of the Year, which is an extraordinary thing that they used to give out every year as well. Pipe Smoker of the Year. And they'd made up this studio in Yorkshire Television to look like a pub, only it didn't look anything like a pub. It looked like a studio that was meant to look like a pub. And they were playing pub games. They were playing skittles and bar billiards and darts and shove halfpenny. And they were all drinking and smoking. And when you watch it back now, you think, this was on at lunchtime. <laughs> and he'd go into the break. It had the most incredible theme tune. That ding, 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 ding. I mean, it's just the best music. And he would go into the break with our civvy. And that's how he'd end the show as well, our civvy. And he was just the most dour-faced chap. But it was hysterical now when I think about it. And they was, they'd have ladies' darts and they would be in a separate bit as if they were in the snug. It was like that, like, you know, when ladies weren't allowed into the main bar type of thing. And they all had massive hair and that looked like it had been lacquered within an inch of its life in almost like a beehive and those 70s nylon dresses on. Just drinking and smoking and pretending they were in a pub and playing dominoes. And quite clearly just in a studio at Yorkshire Television. It was just bizarre. But I remember it with great fondness, possibly because of that theme tune. Because it was such a brilliant piece of music. It was so bonkers. I loved it. Well, it looks really odd when you watch it now. But the thing is, to anyone, you know, who was sort of around our age, Ooh. would just remember the era. That, that was what it was like when you were told, go and see if your granddad's ready to come home yet. And you go in <laughs> to the part of 
the pub that they were in, and they'd all be playing games like that. It was exactly like that. It was like somebody had invited the bar bit from a school fair, and there was a sign saying nobody under 18 passed this point, into your front room. In fact, it's just struck me to link with, in the most recent one of these, when Gabby Hutchinson Crouch was talking about Catherine, her school ghost, and I mentioned the beast that was adjacent to my primary school that (laughs) supposedly lived outside the church's sort of social hall. Quite often, that was... a place where games like that were played. So was the beast in there playing dominoes? Possibly, possibly. And they all took it dreadfully seriously as well. I mean, they would be, oh, so-and-so's beaten so-and-so at dominoes in the first round and they've knocked out the favourite. And, you know, there was like leagues. It was indoor league. There were leagues, you know, and there was ladies' darts and there was the bar billiards and it was proper competitive. But they would flick from one sport to another. So you never really quite, you never followed like a full match of, pro-celebrity dominoes or wherever it might be. I mean, maybe it was just a very, very early version of Eurosport, but... I thought you were going to say Euro trash for a second, which in some ways it's like something you would have seen on an insert in Euro trash. If this had been made somewhere in, I don't know, Scandinavia, it would have popped up on Euro trash. Look what they watch at lunchtime. And the only people watching it back then, you know, back in the 70s, people did come home for lunch. And there was more of a culture of drinking going to a pub and having a pint and a pie at lunch but for me obviously I only ever saw it when it was school holidays or if you were off sick from school and you think oh brilliant indoor leagues on I'll watch people playing shove eight me <laughs> it's just <laughs> and now when you think about how they don't like to show anyone smoking and obviously there's no cigarette adverts anymore and now any adverts for booze has please drink responsibly along the bottom and there they all were, just down in pints at Yorkshire Television. I assume they were real. I can't imagine Fred Truman would be messing about with coloured water. That was probably, that was best bitter in that tankard. He wouldn't have mucked about. I was going to say, before we move on to something else, he was quite an odd man. And oh, it yes. must have been real booze. But oh, looking yeah. into it, I keep finding multiple instances of, this shows you what a bizarre figure he was for his time. Just how things were in those days. There seems to be multiple instances of him standing up against, because he was a really, really successful professional cricketer. Yeah, yeah, and he seems incredible. like when, he, when he's been on tours, he stood up against, you know, sort of the polite racism that was around. It was like, you can't tell me who to fraternise with. Mm. And would then say something incredibly offensive about the people he was defending. It seems yeah. to have been an equal opportunities offender, which I suppose in some ways, I can't say whether that counts in his favour or not, but no. yeah, he was a peculiar man, but it really does, like you say, the smoking, the drinking makes it the atmosphere of it. It reminded me of the way the word in the early 90s was the pitch for that was, it's like a nightclub. At yeah. home for you. Home. And this is like a pop at home for you. Yeah. It's exactly, you can almost feel the smoke coming out of the screen. I seem to remember as well that when he would go, when he would do the links or go into a break, they would also sometimes, there would be a big cardboard cutout of a curvaceous woman, like a barmaid, with enormous boobs kind of spilling out of a blousy top with lots of blonde hair piled up on her head. But it was a big cardboard cutout of one. So there was just quite a lot of casual Could sexism. Could they just not afford well. a real one? No, probably not. 
probably I doubt very much that anyone would want to stand there and be lent upon with Fred Truman breathing booze and fags down well, in the head. <laughs> I will say it does achieve something I thought was almost impossible and it makes Bullseye look like a paragon of sophistication. It's like something Tony Wilson would have commissioned next to <laughs> yes. the league. Yes, yeah. And like you say, he was a very successful cricketer, a Yorkshire legend. And there is, I believe... I've seen it on Twitter, so it's probably on YouTube. Someone has pieced together a montage with that incredible funky music underneath it of him saying Appen and Arsidi and Aop and Reckon and all that, just stuff like that. Just all the, if you ever want cheering up, put that on. There was a lot around that time, though, of programmes that basically, I suppose, what we could call working men's television, Mm. as in working men's clubs, because obviously the most famous one was the Wheel Tappers and Shunters Social Club, which is sort of like the alternative entertainment to this, but you've also got things like Joker's Wild, which I think was on at lunchtime. And they would all smoke. Yeah, they would all sit there. Barry Cry would, he'd have a cigarette on. There would be ash trays on the desks for the guys doing the gags. Dawson used to do it. John Cleese would go on Joker's Wild and be hilariously irreverent as if he didn't understand what was going on. It petrified him going on there. I've watched old clips of it and certainly Barry would have a cigarette on pretty much constantly. (laughs) But they didn't. You watch old episodes of Parky. Guests would come on and there was the carafe of water and the glass and an ashtray and they would smoke or he didn't I don't know whether he did but he certainly didn't while he was interviewing but guests would smoke chaining it really whilst they were on I'm sure Kenneth Williams would sit and smoke while he was on there but I've seen other people smoking on there I think Eric Morecambe did Eric Morecambe have his pipe when he was on there probably he was probably after the pipe smoker of the year title he got that the highly coveted pipe smoker of the year award can you imagine giving that out now there used to be all these rear of the year pipe smoker of the year stripper of the year (laughs) it's extraordinary accolades that they gave out in the 70s imagine doing that now there'd be lisa goddard or whoever had got it with her bum in the sun looking over her shoulder probably having it presented to her by mike and bernie winters or something the weirdest thing about Indoor League is, do you know who created it? It was a gentleman called Sid Waddell, who was a Cambridge graduate. He just had yes. a... I want to say he had a knack for television, not just with entertainment like this. One of the first things he created was, speaking of Michael Parkinson, Cinema, the very highbrow Granada film review show. But he also, he produced Mop and Smith, The Flaxton Boys, Jossie's Giants, which he Jossie's wrote. Jossie's Giants, he wrote Jossie's Giants. He wrote a novel called Bedroll Bella about a group that W.H. Smith refused to stock and right in the middle he came up with this and also it was as an offshoot of this that he was really the person who popularised darts on the television which oh, yes. was Absolutely. just a, apparently by all accounts was just a it wasn't even a niche sport up to that point it's just something that people did in the pub and he made it into the big television event that it became well his commentary at the dart I mean I love the darts I mean I proper love the darts and the snooker. You can tell the level of sporting prowess with me. I love darts and snooker. His commentary was, it was poetry. He was a wordsmith. He was like the Les Dawson of darts, Sid Waddell. 
he had that way with words it was beautiful and it was bonkers and it was florid and wasn't what you expected from darts commentary and now they named the main prize that it's the Sid Waddell Cup when they win the world championship I should have known that because I've read his autobiography but for some reason I had William G Stewart in my mind but he was producer on Bless This House I don't know why I got indoor league of Bless This House muddled up well probably A there's a Sid involved in both and B <laughs> Sid in Bless This House probably played darts and oh, Shove Hately yeah. and Backgammon more than one I would say more than once per episode yeah Oh, I would have thought so. I mean, this is... I think the best way to describe Indoor League is it. It's like the Waddington Games compendium for <laughs> someone who was too slosh to read the rules of backgammon. <laughs> it's yeah. like, is there something I can throw? Yeah, I'll do yeah. that. <laughs> I'll do that then. Can you imagine trying to play dominoes when you're drunk? It's just, I just... Because oh, I'm seeing spots in front of my eyes. Yeah, you should be. Well, do you think, A, it could ever be brought back in the same way that it was, and B, that you should host it if it Oh, I'd love to host it. I'd love to host it. I don't smoke. I mean, now if you brought it back, you'd have someone with some kind of fruit flavoured gin in an enormous goldfish bowl glass and a vape. I don't like the idea of vaping. I like the idea of coming on television with an enormous gin and tonic and introducing people playing darts. I, I like that idea. As if I was some sort of busty, blousy barmaid. I could do myself up like Bet Lynch or something like that. Indoor League was the 70s, though, and you'd think that by the 80s, television might have got a little more sophisticated. Maybe it had, but Channel 4 had come along to make sure it didn't get any less weird, and Birmingham's leading cutlery expert, that's what it says here, Nina Buckley, wanted to remind everyone of Murrumbuck Stanzinger, who, according to her, was... Just the most awful character <laughs> in many, many ways. But also, just lovely, Murrumbuck Stanzinger is a very small, grey, humanoid, well, Frankie Howard-looking cartoon character from the 80s. I think it goes right back to the start of Channel 4. They made about 50 episodes of this, and it was just a, a sort of day in the life of Murrumbuck and his interactions with people. And it was miserable <laughs> it had as you say a very ill-fitting theme tune sort of jaunty charleston-esque <laughs> and then it cuts to murren lying in bed with depression so <laughs> this is quite a departure but i just i really enjoyed the world that it created it was very very british and i remember seeing it for the first time as a kid and just being captivated by it but not really understanding why i didn't know why it appealed to me i didn't know why it drew me in i just think it's because he really enjoyed being in his own company <laughs> whenever he interacted with people they just brought him problems but then there was also quite a lot of problems that were his own making as well but yeah i, I just i love this tv show and again same with i just forgot all about it until somebody mentioned it at work maybe 15 years ago and since then i've been watching episodes of it on the internet every chance i can get can i just ask did somebody mention it at work because somebody was living under the sink in the staff room <laughs> I mean, he looked like a depressed, lost Monster Munch flavour, but that's where he lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what brought it up. I think maybe we were just talking about cartoons from our, our childhood and somebody mentioned this and I just it just jolted me back to watching it. So he used to show it quite early. I think it's sort of around about five o'clock mark in between sort of gaps in the scheduling on Channel 4. But then I think they realised the content <laughs> and how I say philosophical or melancholy or esoteric that it, it was and they moved it I think to past the watershed. 
They wouldn't show it earlier in the day then because I suppose it's quite grown up. But yeah, I don't know why somebody mentioned it, but I'm really glad that they did. Well, there was apparently a cancelled Christmas special in 1988 that was never made. So I wonder how far would you have had to go with something for Channel 4 to cancel it in 1988? But like you say, it did start out as a children's programme. Channel 4's children's programmes early on were really, really weird. It was like Mm. the same way around that time you get children's shows put on by Fringe theatre troops mm-hmm. where they're just being all these children like say but i don't like this my adults telling me i like this i'm actually quite frightened and channel 4 seemed to dive into that because there were things like there was everybody here the sort of multicultural magazine show presented by michael rosen mm-hmm. which i remember liking but finding it weird it was a very kind of deserted yeah. sort of view of i think it was mostly in london but it looked really eerie and creepy there was will quack quack that oh, bloody God, welsh yeah. duck who would just <laughs> he'd do something that wasn't actually that wrong and then be told off for it and then be sent to bed and go quack <laughs> And the Pocket Money programme, which is basically just moaning about the fact that somebody had written off to the Culture Club fan club and their <laughs> membership pack didn't arrive on time. Damn you, Culture Club. <laughs> Helping Henry, which is an alien who talks to a chair or something. Mm. Pop's programme, which is, that's like, sort of, it's like a Soviet art installation. It really is, it really is. They were very challenging programmes, the children's TV from Channel 4. I don't know, maybe the people that sort of produced them were all brought up on the public information films and really wanted to continue that terror for all of the children forever. <laughs> well, I did do a bit of research of this and it was produced, actually, and animated and narrated by Timothy Forder, yeah. who's one of those names in animation where... He turns up a lot in the sort of, you know, the kind of UK supermarket own brand Aladdin and Cinderella that you got around the time there was somebody else doing bigger. That weird, uniquely British look where it doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look Mm -hmm. as though no effort's gone in, but it's got Mm. that distinctly odd flavour to it. Yeah. I'd say that in a positive way. And this was just a character that he dreamt up. You know, he just came up with Murren and then when Channel 4 started. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was just a perfect fit. And I can see what they were trying to do. They were trying to provide an alternative, but this was maybe a little too alternative. Too. <laughs> yeah. One of the animators that worked on it, I think the reason why they didn't do the Christmas special was because one of the animators that worked on it actually went to work on When the Wind Blows. Okay, so... <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> frying pan and fire. <laughs> We've worked on Moran and now we're going to work on nuclear fallout, which just seems like a natural career progression <laughs> for that sort of animator. And speaking of mismatched characters, the very odd thing in this, as we've both said, Moran looked very, very strange. Everyone else he interacted with was like an ordinary human. Cousin Rossiter looks quite like Moran, except for it, it, well, they both look like Frankie Howard, but Rossiter, I think, has glasses. I think that's that's the only difference. And he's quite well. He says he's quite well travelled, but he isn't really. And he reveals to Moran that his stories are quite tall tales and that he's actually quite depressed to which Moran kicks him out of the house. (laughs) Yes, how dare you try and trump my depression with yours. They'd have loved social media, wouldn't they? Oh, he very much, Moran is very much a man of our time now, for sure. He spent an entire episode looking for a piece of lining from a raincoat because he really enjoyed the way that it smelt. Only to be interrupted by his next door neighbour whose mother had gone into hospital. Her hamster had died and she caught her boyfriend cheating. He offered no help whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) None. And was really more concerned with why he'd been interrupted in his search for this piece of raincoat lining. (laughs) 
when's International Murren's Day? Yeah, every day. Every day is International Murren's Day. Just that self-absorption, I think I found that really fascinating. I mean, he's definitely, definitely, you know, self-obsessed and there are some real personality quirks to Murren, I think we should say. Well, he looks a little bit like a certain gentleman who recently bought a social media site. Oh my God, he does. He looks exactly like him. We can't say his name, can we? <laughs> no swearing on the podcast. <laughs> he does, he looks exactly like him. Oh, I can't believe I didn't notice that. There is a very strange, when you look back at the 80s though, you know, people go on about, it was more a 70s thing, but there was the way we just took aspects of horror or, you know, unpleasantness in children's television in our stride. There was also things that, you know, did not fit into that category like this, where in their own way, they were, I don't want to say upbeat, but you know what I mean? They weren't there to disturb, but mm. that you just accepted that, oh, that's what the telly does sometimes. That's what yeah. that theatre troupe coming to assembly in school do. <laughs> You know, it was, just, it was just part of the... I won't even say part of the menu, because it's never a choice. It's just part of the agenda. You just went like, oh, yeah, there's that. And then another time it'll be Hong Kong Philly or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It, things were quite dark, weren't they? We, we lived alongside them. I, don't, I mean, I, I think this started in sort of 1982. So coming out of the 70s, things were dark anyway, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> all the striking and things like that. So maybe this was actually thought of as being quite joyful <laughs> by those standards. <laughs> well, I certainly remember it being amongst early Channel 4 could be quite disturbing. A, because it showed disturbing stuff, and B, because there were quite often men shouting about obscure political things or consumer mm. rights. Only not on crumbly films sat on big chairs. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely the goth channel, wasn't it? <laughs> There's yeah, quite a few things that, but but obviously then we have countdown as well. Yeah, so it, I suppose it just balances out with that. <laughs> I will say though that the messages in it are not. I mean, you compare it to things like I suppose. Well, to pick a random example, not looking at anything that's right next to me on my desk at all. But finger bops. <laughs> Famously, mm. there's the episode where they tell the story about the crow who can't drink from the glass of water, so he one by one deposits pebbles in it to mm-hmm. raise the water level so he can drink. You know, that's about patience and feeling like you've mm. earned something. Whereas in this, the morals of things like if you put a thing off for long enough, the need to do it disappears. Yeah. No, it doesn't. It actually gets more pressing and urgent. Yeah, there were no messages with this other than just do what you want and just be upset all the time. You just just everything is so irksome about this. <laughs> There's very few positives, and knowingly so, because there are episodes where Murren does something really sort of dead tight, really awful, and he looks to camera, well, whatever it would, you know, looks to the viewer to make you complicit. It's just dreadful. There's one episode where his neighbour, the young sort of blonde lady, comes around, she wants to visit him and she'd like to come in, and he said, oh, no, 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 you can't come in, I've got to tidy up, my place is a mess, and she's like, it's always a mess, what's the problem? It turns out he's got another woman in his crack. He's got another woman there and he doesn't want her to see that. And then he looks towards the viewer at the end and we're like, well, Murren, you dog. <laughs> That's awful. How did he get one there to begin with? How did he not just put her off within seconds with this moaning about himself? I've no idea, but the other lady looks French. So maybe, I don't know, she liked his sort of attitude. Maybe she finds him sort of nonchalant. I don't know. <laughs> Basically, it was an animation for Smith's fans. Yeah, 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 which I grew up to be. So, yeah, that's accurate, 100%. <laughs> 
A world away from Murren's grey-green self-pitying miserableness, though probably also in the outbreaks of his show, you could have found a certain fluffy pink dog whom artist and novelist Rose Ruane took straight to her heart. Hutchie was an extremely diva dog who always had sunglasses on her head, as that sort of in a way that always suggested she was perhaps like a little bit hungover or incredibly famous with like big bouffant pink ears and a yellow collar and I think she was a Mattel product and I'm never clear about whether or not there was a cartoon because she sort of existed in toy and cartoon drawing form and she was basically there to seduce little children with a hankering for pink into getting as much stationery, stuffed animals, school bags as possible but she definitely for a dog I think she was a poodle it's always quite hard you know in the crafts of cartoon dogs to work out what breed they are but I think she was some kind of poodle if only for her sort of kitschness and the bigness and lushness of her ears slash hair I was going to say pink is a very dominant theme because basically Poochie's got this extraordinary Zandra Rhodes look going on. This just wadge of pink hair. Like you say, there was apparently a very short-lived cartoon, which I've got some thoughts on. Well, not on the cartoon itself, but on the whole idea of doing cartoons themed around toys. But Poochie was originally launched. Apparently there's different adverts in America, but over here, we got one that I now can't find where it started with a cartoon where it said... Quote, once your fairy godmother said don't touch the flowers out in the morning sun, but you ate them all up and you turned the pretty pink and everybody thinks you're much more fun. And then it went into the Poochie, oh Poochie, lovely little Poochie, which is weirdly the same as there was a Jelly Tots, Dolly Tots and Tiger Tots. And that bet for all four of them around that time, they had more or less the same song, so I assume it was the same guy did them. And it was this sort of very, in a sense, twee-looking setup, although Poochie seems to be more zany than some of the other kind of twee creations aimed specifically at girls around that time, like the Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake and Rainbow Bright. There seems to be a bit more, not quite surreal humour, but that kind of element to it. But yeah, Poochie was very sort of aimed in the cutesy direction. Very cutesy, but with like a remarkably sort of psychedelic vibe to the introduction. I mean, I think there's some real like 60s West Coast vibes to like eating the flowers and (laughs) the rainbows. I always felt like, you know, Poochie had lived. I felt like she was some kind of global citizen diva. I think it's the sunglasses. I can't get over how often she had her sunglasses perched on her head in a way that sort of suggested some kind of starlety quality that like, maybe Poochie was in fashion I don't know if it's the Sandra Rhodes thing but I always assumed like a certain cosmopolitan quality to Poochie that I really enjoyed <laughs> And like you said, there was a very short-lived cartoon, but my feeling about those cartoons in the 80s, it was always a bit which came first, the toy line or the idea for the cartoon, with a lot of interlinked ones. But the ones that seemed to work, the ones that people remember, the ones that ran for more than one series, are the ones that had a sort of mythology behind them. So, you know, that would be like Transformers, Mask, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Even, I suppose, things like My Little Pony had this sort of narrative. But a lot of the ones like Poochie, like Rainbow Bright, were just kind of we do good things and 
good things happen to us because of them. And that's not really, that's not an engaging narrative. Well, it's not even the narrative, it's one episode at a time, but for kids watching cartoons, I think that's probably why they didn't catch on, really. Well, I always think, like, at least, you know, because I'm, I'm going to challenge you on this, that, like, Rainbow Bright was very narratively complex, and even the Care Bears and Strawberry Shortcake, like, they all had a proper nemesis, like any good cartoon. There was, like, some kind of enmity there was a level of threat I always thought like nobody wanted the toys of their enemies they were always like you know something squat and green faced (laughs) and lantern jawed with like sort of Fenella vibes they were never very appealing and they usually had some like sort of horrible little insectoid sidekick whereas Poochie I think was a bit more like I wonder if she was like a sort of anglicised version of Hello Kitty or something where you just sort of drop the character into like some kind of frothy romp like a little bit of a fun situation of like where do you find yourself today Poochie like what are you doing how hungover are you are you wearing your sunglasses no they're still on your head which seems like quite a 90s thing doesn't it quite sort of minty that's nice sunglasses on head thing but yeah I don't remember there being like any particular unifying thread that ran through that unlike other things which you wrongly (laughs) (laughs) I'll admit my view there is mainly tainted by the get along gang who their sole purpose was they got on with each other and with everyone else I was tweeting about them the other day where I said they were basically the Tory Wuzzles because the Wuzzles are like the Wuzzles were gender queer they were species queer they had great eye makeup they were unabashedly naked they had a great time messing about whereas the Get Along Gang fucking always doing pee toxic positivity really jockey sportswear that absolute shower of little cops and they bullied Bingo the adorable cute little freak in dungarees for like not going along with their nonsense self-care bullshit whatever it was they did it did seem to mainly center on jogging and juice like some kind of multi-level market scheme or some kind of Instagrammable lifestyle brand. Don't start me on the Get Along Gang. I can't stand those fuckers. The Get Along Gang would have bullied me at school, whereas the Wuzzles would have been my friends. I will say, though, I mean, like you say, nobody did want the villains of Strawberry Shortcake song, but it's worth pointing out, everyone wants a Skeletor. They want a Skeletor more than the endless variations on He-Man slash Prince Adam. So that's saying something. But I noticed Poochie did seem to diversify into a lot of other areas like pencil cases and shrinky dinks apparently which i thought were sort of been and gone by the 80s but did you have a a poochie and b any other associated poochie member is it memorabilia merchandise poochie cushions basically i mean there's a point i think if you have it as an adult it's memorabilia and if you have it as a (laughs) child it's merchandise is probably the definition that i would make and oh my god i had as much of it as my pocket money could buy i remember like working i think i had the sort of associated shite first like i remember having a poochie it was like a little sort of like a classic inkwell setup but with like a really kind of stiff plastic 
Brit poetry in the middle and it had little stampers on the other side. I remember absolutely covering my own skin in these like poochy stamps. It's sort of like that photo of Richie Manic where he's covered in the <laughs> stamps of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Where is it like I poochied the ever-loving fuck out of every inch of my skin with this stamper and I had all the stationery and I think I remember having poochy scissors or something weird, which, you know, I feel like there's a real John Waters meets the 80s vibe of like imagining committing murder with a pair of poochy scissors. <laughs> I probably cut my own hair with them because I was ba- basically I used like most of my childhood stationary it's i'm realizing now in the sort of pursuit of the kind of body modification that i would come to enjoy as an adult but the great day was when i finally got the plush yeah it was absolutely the best day of my life until that point when i finally got like the proper plush poochie but she very quickly she sort of had her fluffy ears but she very very quickly sort of became like a sad drunken old lady's like very ancient and beloved fur coat around the ears in a way that I don't mean to be shallow, but I think I quite quickly loved her less for that, I'm afraid. Well, it's quite odd that that was also the kind of coat that Sandra Rhodes would favour when she got awoken or something. So it's a very big theme of her around Poochie, isn't there? (laughs) I mean, she was all hair. She's sort of all surface, no feeling. She's very much just like a vibe and an aesthetic, given that, like... I find I can't really recall anything else about what she was meant to be other than like pink, pink, pink and in some way implying some sort of starlety cool that I probably coveted. So, you know, actually, I think looking back, there's not a lot to recommend poor Poochie. Broadcaster B.B. Lynch didn't have much time for fluffy pink dogs, however, and wanted to explain instead why she bought a single by a certain perm-sporting footballer who also fancied himself as a bit of a singer. Because I am head over heels in love with him. I loved Kevin Keegan. I still love Kevin Keegan. I would love it. I support Liverpool. And as you can tell from my accent, I'm (laughs) I'm from South London. (laughs) But my, my reasoning is when I was young, they were, I mean, I am this shallow, they were winning everything and they were extraordinary and they had the tight shorts and the tight perms and they were just fabulous and I loved them and Kevin Keegan was my love. One of my uncles had a wedding, it was in Battersea and at his wedding reception I made them put the telly on because Liverpool were playing. It was like, where would there be a TV? It was a cup final, I think it was against Man U. Anyway, there was a TV then, I made them put it on and Liverpool lost and my dad was like, don't, I don't, I'll beat up Kevin Keegan for you. And I was like, don't touch him! <laughs> like, literally hysterical. And then years later, my dad met Kenny Dalglish and said to Kenny Dalglish, you ruined my life. My daughter always loved you more than she loved me, which isn't true, but it was quite close. <laughs> but, um, but how sweet. But anyway, I just love Kevin Keegan. So when he brought out a single, I mean, imagine the joy, Shay BB. And I think, and I hope I'm not making this up, I think I had it on blue vinyl. And you'd think it was Kevin Keegan, it should have been red vinyl. Well, he had actually left Liverpool at that point. Amazingly, yes, I know a football fact, but that was just after. And I wonder if this was linked in some way, which I'll get around to, but he was after brilliantly named Hamburger SV in Germany. (laughs) (laughs) And the single was written by members of Smokey, who... (laughs) 
Well, you know, they were relatively successful over here, but they were huge in Germany for about 2,000 years. And I wonder if it was some kind of byproduct of that, because Smokey right. were always coming on Checkers Place Pop and talk about how big they were in Germany. <laughs> well, they did their single, you know, that got to number 38 or something. <laughs> this got to number 31, actually. But was it because, was it actually sort of a German, I don't want to say a German operation, but you know what I mean? Well, did it come about as part of his newfound popularity in Germany? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I mean, are you sure it only hit 31? Apparently so, yes. Yeah, according to Tim Rice's book of British hit singles. Maybe yeah. Tim Rice is bitter about this because I'm not sure that Tim's got that right. He was, I mean, Kevin was on, I picture him doing Top of the Pops. I'm sure I picture him doing Top of the Pops with this. So look how high my voice has gone talking about <laughs> Kevin Keegan. I'm sure I remember him do, doing Top of the Pops and you think Kevin Keegan on Top of the Pops, that's going to be top 10. I don't know, because if you watch the repeats on BBC4, in those days in particular, in the late 70s, they did just have, I don't know what was going on, maybe it's all the strikes and so on, but any old bunch of no-hopers that, you know, <laughs> might chart the next week. You cannot call him. You take that back No, I didn't, mean, I didn't mean him. I meant you get people who were like the motors, but not as good as the motors. <laughs> hey, was this, was, was the single out before or after he did Superstars? I assume it would have been around the same time. Because Superstars is really... That, you know, that's something that nobody ever talks about. It had that real whole sort of big sports theme, people in bright tracksuits aesthetic. Anyone who doesn't know, it was a show where basically sports people, they would have said sports men in the announcements, but they had women on it too, to be fair, competed against each other at their respective sports. You know, things like archery and so on, and obviously penalty shootouts and things. And <laughs> it was a huge thing. And they got big names like him to be on it. And wasn't he the one that had the awful bike crash? Yes, he did. In fact, I have got a very vague memory of having... You know, you used to get those football annuals. Yeah. Before they brought out magazines like Shoot and so on. They were just yeah. the football annual. I remember one where it referred to... Yes, this is all coming together, where it referred to this superstar's accident... And it had, as part of his recovery, a photo of him balancing a copy of Head Over Heels in Love between <laughs> his toes. Genuinely. Uh, uh, and there was a comment about, he better watch out for those slip discs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him even more for that. That's so, that's such terrible, terrible judgment. <laughs> superstars. I mean, he is really somebody who, given how huge he was, I would say he was more than a household name in the 70s. Yeah. He even went beyond yeah. that. And as iconic footballers go, he's kind of been forgotten about. What do you think? I think he's known more as a manager now. I think, you know, when people start banging on about, they've never have had this in my day, so-and-so would have scored that goal. It's never Kevin Keegan that it's gets never brought Keegan. up. God, that, isn't it weird? I mean, he obviously was huge to me, but maybe... You just get jokes about perms, really. I was just going to say, maybe the publicity around him has negated the football skills. Well, this wasn't his only record. Stop it. In 1972, he did a single called It Ain't Easy. I was so disappointed it wasn't a Bowie cover, which it should be given that time. It's kind of like a second wave glam rock thing. 
Are you teasing? No, not at all. But it doesn't really suit his voice, I don't think. <laughs> I think somebody was just quick get this record out. And after this, when he came back to the UK in 1980, he did a single called England, which is a really, <laughs> really dreary ballad on goal records, where it sounds like the sort of thing that would have been, say he'd done an advert for bread around that time, where it would have been him approaching an old lady's cottage with a voiceover from her saying, oh, good old Kevin, he might be a star, he never forgets to bring me the washing up liquid. <laughs> Go, got any bread? It's the sort of like music that would have been in that. And that did not chart. So I love the fact it was on gold record. This is interesting, though, because, you know, it was a hit, but it, to me, it sounds like something maybe from 1976 rather than 79, which, you know, sounds a bit nitpicky, but in pop music, that makes all the difference. You think of 1979, you think of Gary Newman, you think of I'm in the mood for dancing. Unfortunately, you do think of matchstalk men and matchstalk cats and dogs as well. But the last time I slagged that off, the trouble I got him. But... Don't do that. Don't touch that. <laughs> it does show how big he was. You know, you've got the 70s book ended by that, and very early on, he did that public information film where he comes out of Liverpool that's in the ground and tells off a boy who's playing football too near the road. <gasps> Where it's yeah. pretty perm as well. He's got just like a just a very odd sort of shaped hairstyle. <laughs> Stop picking on him. This is so, and I kind of forget that he did. He did the brute ads as well, didn't he? And did he ever go on tour with the music? I don't know because I think what's interesting here is that he isn't a great singer, but he can carry a tune. And I think, especially when you watch the performances he does of this and the B side that are on YouTube. I'll come back to the B side, but it looks like he knows he could carry a tune and yeah. was doing it as something you know for the fun of it for something to enjoy he didn't see himself as a serious musician but yeah. he, was gonna, he was gonna give it yeah but he does it yes he, he was, was also so good looking it, yeah. and he was de- he's definitely i mean he must so he must have been in all the kind of girls pop magazines he's a good looking man you know he was famous he was cute he was pretty and yeah he could carry a tune he had all the makings didn't he of a huge pop star did he go international apart from germany was head over heels big in germany i wonder it looks like it was because most of the performances on YouTube are from German pop shows where he also right. does the B-side Move On Down which sounds like an angry Mungo Jerry that's the way it can be described that it's got a really long guitar solo in where credit to him during that he kind of just like nods from side to side laughing again as though he knows this is a bit silly that I'm doing this he should be doing some keepy still with copies of the single. Whatever he wants to do, it's Kevin Keegan. You do what he wants. Do you think Kevin Keegan and Kenny Douglas are friends? I hope they are. That's all I've got to say on the matter. But I really hope they're friends. I hope they go out and have milkshakes together. Isn't it interesting to look back on, though? That was a different kind of superstar football that you got in those days. Well, I would argue, in a way, I think they were more famous. They permeated the wider world a lot more. But they were less wealthy, less glamorous. Yeah. Got less endorsements. And I think, you know, today there's a feeling that players are more famous. I don't think they actually are. I don't think they really kind of... You know, everyone knows. You say Kevin Keegan, you think Perm. Is there really an equivalent to that now? I think you're right. I think, you know, probably because there were less lucrative endorsements, etc. that's why they did the other stuff to kind of bring <laughs> that money in. And, I mean, again, because we're on Twitter, in the world of Twitter, in the world of things like that, you know, fame is huge. So, you know, Grealish, I mean, Grealish, maybe Grealish is a good example, actually, maybe of someone who's kind of crossed the football boundary into public conscience, who knows. But mainly, I guess, that people seem huge because we're surrounded by it. 
but Keegan, with no social media, was huge. Was everywhere. So he was kind of across all classes, wasn't he? Everyone would know who he was, like you say. And out of football. Exactly. And also, it is worth saying, for a football record, especially a football record of that time, it is actually quite good. Yeah. I think it's a little bit cheesy. It's a little bit kind of, they're trying to do a pop song as a terrace chant. Nobody's going to sing this on the terraces. But it's likeable enough. I think it works. I think it's catchy. I think it's the arrangement could be a bit more energetic. But, you know, that's somebody who, well, probably preferred airport by the motors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe it wasn't up your strasser, but it was like, <laughs> we love it. We love it. And it's, you know, I've, I wonder if I've still got it somewhere. Because I've moved a million times in my life. I wonder oh, if I've you've got, got some to recreate fun. that photo of him holding it between his toes. <laughs> yeah, I want that. I'm going to have that as my new profile on Twitter. Oh, I love him. All of those girls and boys who grew up wanting to be, or indeed wanting to marry Kevin Keegan, though, would soon find themselves facing the harsh realities of the early 80s in Thatcher's Britain, and broadcaster Bob Fisher wanted to save a place on the youth training scheme for a couple of former Grange Hill pupils trying to find their way in the world. This is essentially a spin-off from Grange Hill, broadcast between 1983 and 1985. There's three series of it, and it's Tucker Jenkins, who was an icon of the early years of Grange Hill. And I guess a character so popular that they just didn't want to lose him. You know, the problem with popular characters in Grange Hill is that they have to leave school at some point and you don't see them again. But they didn't want that to happen with Tucker. He had his own inbuilt fan base. And so Tucker's Luck was launched and it belongs to... It's a kind of school of not just TV. I think it extends into literature as well and a few films. It's like a school of generally very early 1980s pop culture that I tend to... I mean, I've described it before as Fatcher's Britain with an F on the start of it. And it's just... It's like a little bubble of popular culture from, I say, roughly 1979 to about 1984. And... Just the look of it and the feel of it is relentlessly bleak and it's 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 generally all about young people trying to find their way in a world where there really isn't there aren't that many options for them so it's the tv of job centers of dole cues of hopelessness of football hooligans and all tied in with the fashions of the era you know those those lads that you would see walking down the street in the early 1980s that i think kind of came to be known as casuals so you see all lads walking down the street to football matches with the flick haircut the (laughs) like the fringe like sort of wedge with the fringe over one eye they look like members of modern romance on their day off absolutely that so they'd have (laughs) they'd have to keep flicking like one one, like (laughs) the fringe out of their eye all the time that whole era i just find so incredibly evocative i think maybe because it sort of summed up you know i'm from the northeast of england i'm from teesside near middlesbrough my dad was unemployed a lot in the 1980s we didn't have a lot of money coming in and my dad was a builder you know so programs like boys and the black stuff that i think very much firmly belong to that thatcher's britain school of tv you know that just absolutely summed up our life at the time took us luck does the same for me even though it's set in london i absolutely recognize just the look and the grimness of that period in British history but having said that there's a lot of humor in Tucker's look you know Todd Carty is a 
brilliant actor. So yeah, the interplay between it's Tucker along with his friends Alan and Tommy, who you know have also graduated from Grange Hill. The interplay between them is genuinely funny. So the whole thing kind of mishes, mashes together into this gloriously. It's like the gallows humour of the early Thatcher years. It's a terrific piece of television, and it's one of the great one one of the great regrets of my life, Tim. And we've never had the opportunity to buy it on DVD. I think it would make a brilliant, you know, three-disc box set. And I'm so frustrated that I guess now we're right at the fag end of the era of classic TV being released on physical media. I'm so frustrated that it's never actually happened because I'd love to see it. Yes, as you say, it was part of... I mean, there was that wider thing, like you say, the Thatcher's Britain TV. But there was a kind of microcosm of it on BBC Two. Yep. When the news was on BBC One, they would have youth shows that you watched as if they were an extension of the children's BBC schedules, even though they technically weren't. Yeah, that's true. Obviously, that's where it had things like the adventure game and so on, you know, and now get out of that, you know, more cerebral things. But it also had dramas like Maggie, which is a sort of postcard record style one about the girl who was from a family who worked in a factory who she wanted to go to university, as B.A. Robertson put it at great length in the theme song, Dear Heart, the sort of post-punk sketch show about a teen problem magazine. And this fitted in very much with that and I will be honest although I do think Phil Redmond missed the point enormously a lot of the time with a lot of things he did I think this was absolutely bang on for what it was trying to be there was only one weak link in the whole program for me go on I mean there are so many great things like Let's you know, have it. okay I'll come back to what I think is great <laughs> in a minute on. but the opening titles are really good with like a Just 17 photo story <laughs> yes. with them all kind of outside even though it's in black and white one of those job centres with the orange sign the orange job centre it's yep. so evocative it and everything about it captures their characters and there's a bit where they indicate that Alan is on the dole because he looks at some chips and then looks <laughs> at some money he's got and like, like forlornly counts like there's a couple of like ten pence pieces in his hand <laughs> but the only problem is that theme music which sounds like a very 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 polite version of Destination Zululand by King Kurt it's like they knew what was going on what these kids would have been listening to but were too frightened to go all the way with it <laughs> Who is it? Is it Alan Hawkshaw? I think it is. Obviously, Alan Hawkshaw, the Chicken Man, yeah, the Range Hill theme. I think which it's him is, again. You know, it's absolutely iconic, but this isn't quite Chicken Man. <laughs> oh, I like the theme tune to it. And now that you've mentioned it, I've got it stuck in my head. I've been trying to trace the kind of like the earliest years, the Rosetta Stone of Thatcher's Britain TV. Because you mentioned some great examples there. And I mean, there's also stuff like, I think Johnny Jarvis is quite contemporary yes, with, with yeah. Tucker's Look, which is a Swalk, which was a Channel 4 oh, problem page I don't page remember thing. that, right, okay. Yeah, that was Nicola Cowper as a teenage girl, and Prunella Scales as Aunt Patty, who was oh, a okay. problem page agony aunt who advised her. Sort of right. Had the kind of, like, altered images theme tune. That's oh. what makes me think the Tucker's Luck theme tune doesn't quite match up to the <laughs> other ones around Because everything else, you know, they had B.A. Robertson, they had yeah. Dream Stuffing, had Kirsty McColl. You know, there were people, obviously, emulating the real sounds, but this just didn't go the whole 
<laughs> well, the, the earliest example that I can find is a program called Four Idle Hands that I'm yes! guessing you might be aware of, which has got the absolutely, it's much earlier because you, you know, you'd watch it and you think, oh, it's a Thatcher's Britain series. But I think it's about 1977. It's quite ahead of its time. It's got the absolutely perfect casting. If you've got to make a program at that era about two likely lads who just left school and were looking for work in the absolute wastelands of late 1970s, early 80s Britain, you'd have to pick Phil Daniels and Ray Burdis to be in it. It's virtually on the statute book. If you make it any kind of program <laughs> like that, you've got to cast them both. So that, I think, is the earliest example. But it was... I mean, there aren't hundreds of them. You know, it's not like a huge scene, a huge movement, but it is absolutely there. Well, do you know about the one that was nearly oh, brought into all that? Do you remember Sea View, which was kind of... I love Sea View. BBC One children's sitcom. I do, absolutely. When the cast got a bit older... Was there going to be a spin-off were... with George by himself? Well, they were originally just going to move it straight into the BBC Two slot and right. have them, you know, as school leavers. Yeah. And it just never came about oh. for some reason. I really wish they'd done that because that was, again, that was light and funny and it was for kids. But, you know, it was about a brother and sister who moved to a coastal town. Yeah. And their mate, James, the local friend they made, was the kind of kid who robbed fruit machines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it was all right because of context. He wasn't, you know, an evil or a robber. It was just how they made ends meet in his family. Everybody remembers that Yvette Fielding was the older sister in Seaview. Yeah. And she's great in it. I always liked the lad in it that played, because the main character is called George. And he's the most fabulously sarcastic kid. He's really ridiculously hangdog. He's like he's like the Wally Batty of like kids' programs. So yes, no, it was a great little program. And Maggie Ollerinshaw is the mum in Seaview, wasn't it? She's an actor that I really like. She's always brilliant. Maggie Ollerinshaw is fantastic. Yeah. It's a shame she never read the book because she was so recognisable mm. around then. She was one of those people. I think she played much older than she actually ah, was. Ah, well, now here you go because I can do a ridiculous name drop here. A Maggie Ollerinshaw. <laughs> This is what this show was made for. (laughs) So... It's only a couple of weeks ago. I took part in a 50th anniversary celebration of Last of the Summer Wine in Homefirth, town where it was filmed. But as part of it, we wanted to include First of the Summer Wine as well, which was the 1988 spin-off. First of the Summer Wine is set in 1939, just as war is rumbling. So we have a teenage Norman Clegg, played by David Fenwick, and his mum, Clegg's mum, is played by Maggie Ollerinshaw. Now, David Fenwick actually came to the weekend in Homeforth a couple of weeks ago, and he's absolutely charming. And he was saying, I think we worked out that he was playing an 18-year-old Norman Clegg, but he was 26, and Maggie Ollerinshaw was playing his mum, and she was a about 37. There's not that much between them. So yeah, she was. When we were watching her playing middle-aged women in the 1980s, she was about 34. But she's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant actor. Just one of those great British female character actors. Sorry, we've drifted quite a long way off Tucker's luck here, haven't we? Well, yeah, I'd sure to go back to it. I did say I was going to say some of the things I think are absolutely brilliant about it. One of them is, I mean, say the antagonist 
antagonist. He's the antagonist in the first series, but as would happen in real life, he finds out that he's got a lot more in common with Tucker than he realised and becomes sort of allies over the course of the series, which is Ralph Passmore, the skinhead, yeah. who I'm sure people would laugh at his appearance now. That looked exactly like the kind of rude boy you saw from the end it of the street totally when you're getting did. into the car and thought, oh, I hope he doesn't come any nearer. Well, and, you know, he vaulted railings. He yeah. got the whole kind of getting furious from nowhere when he didn't understand things. Yeah. Spot on. Absolutely. What a brilliant... I mean, it's not really a villain. He's just a, an angry kid he that is. they encounter. But he's so accurate. One of my little bugbears in life is that I, I, there are very few actors, I think, that can pull off being genuinely scary. Very, You know, a lot of actors can do kind of evil. But very few actors, I think, you look at them on screen and go, God, I wouldn't want to come across him on a dark night in a back alleyway. Alan Lake is one that always... And, I, Alan, and from yeah. what I can gather, Alan Lake was genuinely terrifying in real life as well. You know, I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Robin Asquith over the years. And by God, some of the stories that he's told about Alan Lake, absolutely extraordinary. And I think it's Peter McNamara who plays Ralph Passmore captures it as well. There's something genuinely disturbing about Passmore in that first series of Tucker's Look. What's also brilliantly done is his mate, who's called Brains. Yes! Is the kind of, I, can't, I can't recall the actor's name, but he's just like like neck to knees in stonewashed denim, and then like the 36 hole cherry red DMs, and the skinhead, like it's beyond a skinhead, it's just shaved to the skull, and there's, you know, stuff like his clothes are torn but not in the kind of you know kind of cool like post-punk talk his clothes are torn because he's just you know been on the receiving end of kickings all the time and administered no doubt loads of them himself and that's just the I used to see those lads at football matches all the time in the 1980s absolutely terrifying that first series of Tucker's Luck I genuinely think is one of the greatest series of anything and it culminates in a fight at a skating park in the final episode yes! between Tucker and pass more but to me I remember reading the Radio Times capsule for that and thinking that sounds brilliant they're at like a roller disco oh god honestly it's just it's a brilliant series and it also I (laughs) took as luck has some of the finest examples of what our friend Mike Scott refers to as sausage acting which for those unaware of this particular genre of acting (laughs) this particular technique (laughs) is basically it's very common in fatuous Britain programmes you need two young men who've just bought a tray of chips and one of them but only one of them has a Savaloy can you even buy Savaloys anymore? They seem to be everywhere in the early 1980s. What happened to all the Savaloys? Is there a great British Savaloy shortage? One of them has got a Savaloy that he hasn't touched. So the other one takes it off his mate's tray of chips, takes a bite out of it, and then crucially uses it to gesticulate like you would use like a pipe. Like pipe spokers are able to do, to to jab it. in their opponent's face to make a particularly vociferous point. It has to be done with a Savaloy. And bonus points if the lad who's nicked it says, you're not hungry then, and takes a huge bite out of it. Sausage acting. Mike is convinced they used to teach it at Anna Share. Mentioning that climax of the first series, because there's storylines about girls in it and so on that realistically don't go anywhere after that first series. No. You know, they meet different people. And the brilliant thing is, as would happen in real life, as of series two, they start drifting apart. Absolutely. Which is where brilliant. the character that you wanted to mention comes into it. This is it. So a uh, second series, the uh, character appears 
It's called Creamy Eames. <laughs> Unlikely as it sounds. <laughs> Insert your own jokes here. I can assure you, people have said this over the years, but genuinely, TV Cream was not named after Creamy Eames. <laughs> I'm sure, actually, Phil Norman will be thinking now, why didn't I think of that? Played by an actor called Adam Cutts, who's still acting. He's, he's been in Midsummer Murders and things like that. But it's just a character that fascinates me because... It's the first time that I recall seeing somebody homeless portrayed on TV in that way. So if you watch TV from before 1980 and beyond that as well, you often see Trab. It's a character in lots of comedy, drama, anything. This kind of romantic ideal of, oh, he's a tramp. And it's kind of an old guy with a big beard and a floppy hat and a you know huge coat tied with a bit of string. But Creamy in series two of Tucker's Luck is a lad who I think it's suggested there's been some kind of fallout with his family and there's possibly some darkness there. But he's left home in his late teens and he is basically drifting, doing what I think now gets called couch surfing. Just kind of drifting from mate to mate, from house to house. I'm just looking for anywhere to live. And I've never really seen that portrayed in such a... It's depicted in a very sensitive and a very understanding way. And it's a brilliant portrayal from Adam Coates as well. I think he's fabulous in it. So kind of, he was the one I was going to pick out, but I'm glad that we've done Tucker's Look as a whole. And you know, I'd never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. It's brilliant in the way that it portrays, like you say, friendships, especially friendships between young people, where people just disappear. People just leave your life. They drift out of it. They move away. They get a job somewhere else. They go back to college or university or whatever. Or if they're like Tommy, they start nicking stuff and selling it down the market. Yeah. Tucker wants nothing to uh, do complete. with it. Tommy gets into really bad company and gets involved with like a local gangster club owner. And then I think, is he, is he not in series three i don't think he is tommy is he he's not no because it's the whole thing about tucker kind of grows up as well yeah, yeah. part of it he enrolls at technical college in series three and he takes some responsibility for his younger sister i think that's that, right am i right thinking the dad does a bunk or something and he steps up but the real surprise in it is that you know as you say you had alan and tommy as holdovers in grange hill yeah apparently ralph passmore was actually possibly not named but a minor character in grange hill at one point oh, I don't remember that, no, but I've seen that claimed elsewhere. Right, it okay. may have just been he was an extra and they thought he'd be brilliant yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. But right at the end, back in comes Trisha Yates, That's herself right. having grown up, yep. and her and Tucker appear to be on the verge of some kind of romance. It's a genuinely lovely ending, it is. It is brilliant. It's left there yep. that there wasn't any follow-on to it, because I do think that... I feel oddly emotional saying this about two mm. characters from... I was much younger than them when they were in Grange Hill, but the fact that they could have had a happy life. Yeah. Yep. Just, it's making me actually sort of almost well. I'm a little isn't bit it? tingling isn't that myself. Weird? No, totally and utterly. It is a genuinely lovely ending. And I once, again, clang in my inexplicable years as a mainstream BBC local radio presenter. I had the genuine pleasure of spending an hour in the studio with Todd Carty because he was in Panto in Middlesbrough so I persuaded him to come in for an hour one night. It's a lovely rambling evening show that I used to do. You know, obviously we talked about the Panto and we talked about Grange Hill which obviously he would have been expecting to do. Possibly not in quite so much detail as he ended up talking about it. But then I brought out Tucker's Look and actually, well, I actually brought out my Tucker's Look annual 1984 <laughs> which I'm very proud to say I got signed. But he said he was, ge Tucker's look was, uh, you know, a thing that he was genuinely, absolutely proud of because it was real and it was social comment and that it kind of tied up 
Tucker's story perfectly. You know, like you say, Tucker is the one that grows up and has sort of a happy ending. But it's a lovely, lovely, bittersweet series. I just, I wish there was a proper release for it and I still keep my fingers crossed. Other than the fact that there were a few new romantic characters lurking around in Tucker's look, it's not exactly easy to get from there to 90s beauty product innovations. But that's exactly where we're headed right now with writer and author Gabby Hutchinson Crouch. When I do this podcast, I like to throw in a 90s beauty product because whenever you have other women of around my age on, it's always the 90s beauty product. I go, oh, yes, at that bit. So Weller toners and shaders were like a little packet, like a little single use sachet of hair dye and it was wash in, wash out hair dye. So it was basically if you were going out for the night, you'd wash in like this colour and then the next time you wash it, almost all of it would come out. It was like not even semi-permanent. It was like really, really temporary hair dye. And they mostly seemed to, weirdly, they mostly seemed to sell it in like really natural, neutral colours. Like what would be the point? It feels like there's absolutely no point if you're going out for the night dyeing your hair sort of dusky ash blonde. Especially since if you were brunette like me, then that would not work. (laughs) The ones that were really popular were one that was a sort of a plum purple and one that I liked that was sort of bright I don't know whether it's called like chili pepper or chili pepper red I know for a fact that the shade gets mentioned on the bureau yes in the day to day yeah Rebecca Fronts I can't remember the actual shade but it's the shade that Rebecca Fronts says her hair is chili hot pepper right it's that one it is that specific one that was my favorite and I still kind of dye my hair I do dye my hair these days because I'm 43 I do kind of dye my hair that kind of color still it's a sort of a dark it's a dark bright red it's kind of red and it, it looked beautiful and yeah I, I used to love that one but yeah sometimes people would have like the plum so it was really good if you were a brunette because the dark chili pepper red would make your hair sort of go a sort of a henna red sort of brownish shiny dark red and the plum one was really good again if you were a dark brunette because it just added a sort of a purple a purple shine to your hair really because it didn't make your hair go bright purple but it added this sort of real yeah sort of purple highlights to dark hair which back in those days when we didn't have that much bright hair color, unless you wanted to go like full punk and have to like bleach it and like put the block color in those were your options if you were like a teenager who didn't want to like do some and, it, and obviously if you came to school with mad hair then you'd get in trouble so that was like a really nice option for like teenagers if you were going like out or to a party or something I think I remember that's what I put in my hair when I went to see REM in 1995 at Milton Keynes Bowl which I mentioned in the previous podcast the one gig that almost all of my peers ended up at (laughs) and I dyed my hair the chili pepper red and it was such a hot day I sweated and I was wearing a beige REM t-shirt and I just had these orange streaks because I'd sweated so much it just like the Weller shaders and toners wash in wash out my sweat was washing it out basically and there were streaks of orange going down my shoulders and down my back it was very exciting so I think that was my main wrangle with it sweating really hard at REM so that it all washed out naturally through like head sweat. (laughs) 
I was going to say, I mean, the packaging, which oh, I've got plenty more to say about the packaging, but it promises mm. six washes washing washout colour. From what yes. you're saying, it sounds like it was maybe 1.2 washes, but had you dyed your hair purple, you know, had you got the purplish tint in it, mm. if you'd gone out, that's quite often what happened, you know, when you had to make your own way around, wait for taxis and so on. Yeah. And it suddenly poured down with rain. Uh-huh. Would you just end up looking like an even lower budget version of Phyllis from Coronation? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, it's like it would be all down your top and all down your shirt. I do still dye my hair and I do still get that issue because I've got really thick hair. People who are similarly afflicted as me, you get to a point when you're washing out the hair dye when you're just bored. <laughs> when you have been rinsing and rinsing and rinsing so much and then you'll move, you'll think you've got it all out and then you'll move the wand a little bit and then it will just start, the water will go orange again. So for fuck's sake, I've been doing this for half an hour. And after a while you just get bored and you're supposed to keep going until the water runs clear and I tend to go until the water runs very slightly orange and then I go that'll do and then that means that for the next few hair washes you don't wear a white top or a white bra because you will get like there's bits that you've missed and you will get like little drips of orange going down your top still so I'm still kind of afflicted by that when I dye my hair but these days I use like a permanent one that isn't just all going to come out immediately. <laughs> I'm guessing it would have looked something along the lines of very weak Lucasade. <laughs> yes yes certainly when I dye my hair now and I've got boards while rinsing and then I go back and I wash my hair again the next time it comes out the colour of a very dehydrated wee it's been a hot day and you wee for the first time in like seven hours it's that colour I'm quite fascinated by the packaging though which mm. has inadvertently reminded me of something I've forgotten about you can tell it's from the mid 90s because all of the models on the packets have got sort of a non-copyright equivalent of the Rachel yes they've all got you know the way you would see I mean this is a real kind of warning of what was to come in the social media age what was the paper based version of clickbaity columns but you get a female columnist writing about how she was persecuted for having a Rachel and then there'll be a photo of her and you think that doesn't look like Jennifer Aston's hair at all but they're <laughs> kind of like that there's a warning on it it's not suitable for permed bleach highlighted or porous hair now, mm. surely either hair is porous or it's not. So don't understand yeah. that. Or hair with a high percentage of grey, which I mm. imagine probably a lot of the women using it at the time. Kind of, ha-ha, suckers, you can't join in. And probably that became more of a, an offensive business strategy as well, time went on. They do actually say that about some hair dyes still. It all depends on how bright it is. It doesn't work as well on grey hair, so it does look very different, basically. And also with something that's like wash in, wash out, that's going to start looking really weird on like grey hair it is more it's a shader and a toner it is more for like adding a sort of a weird highlight to your natural colour hair and if your natural colour hair is silver then it's just going to look a bit weird it was a product for teenagers basically which is fair enough although a lot of us did have perms in those days I don't think people listen to the don't diet if it's perms (laughs) suggestion because a lot of us still had those crunchy perms going on again this is something that seems to have just disappeared almost completely to the extent that there were a couple of packets of sale on ebay I would suggest not buying them and using them. Very <laughs> out of date. Yeah, you might be opening yourself to all kinds of unforeseen <laughs> complications there. But the only other mention I could find was a mum's net discussion thread from someone saying, yeah. what were they called? So they have disappeared almost completely. I wonder if it's because... 
I'm kind of like placing this from an outsider point of view. But it did seem to me at the time that Weller in the mid-90s would be seen as very much a kind of late 70s, early 80s brand. The very sort of Farrah Fawcett thing. In fact, did they even have yeah. a logo of somebody with Farrah Fawcett-ish hair? Possibly. Like it was sort of needs must, you know. There are no yeah. other cheap options available. Ergo, I must use this. Yeah, possibly. These days, mind you, these days it's like Schwarzkopf do loads of things and Schwarzkopf's another like, should have like old lady connotations. Its logo is like a silhouette of like an Edwardian lady or something. I think it all just all just depends. There's, I mean, there's lo- there are loads of like bright temporary hair dye options these days for people who dye their hair at home. For like younger people, as well as sort of people like me who are middle aged and don't quite want to go blue rinse yet. <laughs> so there are a lot of. I think there's a lot more options these days for what you want to do with your hair and how you want to colour it. There are still some wash in, wash out options for people who just want to go bright just for like a night out or something it's just it's not well as shaders and toners anymore next up here's a couple of highlights from my marvel podcast it's good except it sucks even though it features a lot of looks and familiar guests i'm guessing that some of you might not listen to it because you might think that you don't know enough about marvel well neither do some of the guests to be honest and that's the whole point of it really so you're about to hear anna kale on the reaction to captain marvel who she'd never heard of from a certain tiresome section of the audience and Joanne Shepard on watching Avengers Infinity War and encountering the Guardians of the Galaxy for the first time. But first, here's Gary Bainbridge on the late 70s Captain America TV series and the not always exactly high standard of the associated tie-in merchandise. And this is just somebody who is sort of dressed as... I think it was inspired by the evil Knievel craze, everything about it. Mm. But did you ever have the Fisher-Price Adventure People Skydiver, who this <laughs> costume appears to be based on? That's where I've seen him before. Oh, yes, I did have that, that skydiver. That was a great, that was the only parachute toy that actually worked. It did, because, it really did. Because the cords were so thick, they never got tangled up. And yet, ironically, there was actually a Captain America parachute toy. As there was, I can't remember who did them, but it was a line of like optioned characters because I had the Dino one, but I remember other people from Captain America one. But it was like a plastic molded posed figure with one arm up, and there's sort of parachute in that hollow in the back of the figure, and you threw it up, and it was supposed to come down, and it didn't. But this also made me think of, do you remember there was a range of, I think they were Corgi did, the superheroes toy vans, where it had yes. their images and their logos on the side. When you opened it up in the back, there were computers, you know, like the Hulk always used. <laughs> but there was a Captain America one with his round shield on it. And I wonder if that inspired the fan in this. I don't know. I know that the van was one of the things that actually came from this and was taken into the books. Yes. As well as the motorcycle that Captain America rides. And him being an artist and him being an artist which is very strange I remember reading the British reprints around that time and it was the Roger Stern John Byrne was uh, that Captain America Weekly that they brought out to capitalise on these being shown in the UK where I remember them very fondly because from memory also had Iron Man the Defenders and Dazzler as backup strips and you know that's a very me line up really (laughs) definitely the thing is that certainly at the time Captain America is quite a What's the word I would use? I suppose he's quite a vanilla character at the time. He arguably wasn't at his most famous then as well, I'd say. No, definitely not. Although, I suppose, you've got Captain America and an Easy Rider, haven't you? You know, there's obviously a character... Well, there was also, I forgot about this until the other day, the Captain America crisps. I remember the Spider-Man ones, but there were beef burger flavour. And now, what I would love to see is there was no record of these online. But, you know, on the back, they used to have character profiles. With, you know, the lizard or somebody. Oh, yeah. I'm 
convinced one of them, presumably a Spider-Man one, had the Punisher. That's very possible. <laughs> I absolutely have no idea whether that's true, but I believe you, Tim. But yeah, they were allegedly shield-shaped, where they were basically just a circle with a sort of star cut in it. star, yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah. They did replace him with Superman, didn't they? A little <laughs> later down the line, once people realised that nobody had ever heard of Captain America in this country. But, you know, fair play to Golden Bond or whoever created it, you know, a lot of people like to eat shields. Yeah, it's incredibly disappointing, isn't it, as you say, to kind of still have those kind of reactions when, for whatever reason, people feel uncomfortable with, with something that doesn't quite fit their standardised viewpoint of how something should be. I had no preconceptions about Brie Larson coming to watch this film. I thought she was great in it. She was feisty. She was fun. She kind of really played with the role. I liked the performance that she gave. I wish she'd tied her hair back. I think that, that was the only thing that didn't ring true for me, is that when you're doing stuff, speaking as one with long hair, when you're doing it, like, you tie your hair back, you, you have a bobble on your wrist just in case every time you know you think you might have to fight some aliens or something because yeah her hair was getting in her eyes a bit too much for me but apart from that I loved her performance but as I say I had no preconceptions about it I think people come to these films with this agenda and nothing will stop them from labouring their ridiculous points to an audience of no one just to themselves really yeah it's a shame I think that people had that reaction because I think you know she was great in it you know I don't see why it would have been any different but it's quite funny you saying about people that they've made captain Marvel woman that, that's very funny it's like with Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who though yeah that kind of a challenge of the status quo seems to really unnerve people for some reason and given that they don't seem to explain why I can't explain why no and they seem to have a really loud voice you might have said earlier you know, a louder voice than they should have had really in terms of you know actually as you say the box office takings for this film were pretty huge and it was a really successful film you look at Doctor Who you, you know Jodie Whittaker in that she obviously brought in a new audience and people really related to her and enjoyed watching her on screen. It's like there's this like minority who shout the loudest and are really uncomfortable with these things, but yet somehow find the platform to voice that to themselves. You know, it's like a circle, isn't it? You kind of, by voicing it and bringing it up constantly, they're not helping themselves. They're not changing people's views on it. And they are, as far as I'm concerned, the minority. They're just a really loud minority, it seems. Well, obviously I didn't really know who any of them were. And as I said, one of them is some twigs. One of them is a raccoon and one of them is a sort of human snail or looks like a human snail. I don't know what she really is supposed to be. I enjoyed their interactions together and their kind of sort of sometimes slightly awkward relationship. As with Avengers Assemble, I really wanted to know how things work sort of domestically on their ship. Because <laughs> I was like, well, where, where, you know, they're all just kind of sitting there together. Where do they all sleep? What are they eating? Who does the cooking? Have they got staff? I really, I know it's not the point of the <laughs> But these are the things that I think, like, what are the practical details? Who's doing all the admin? Who's doing the supermarket shop? I did enjoy those characters a lot. I wasn't particularly interested in Chris Pratt's character, Star-Lord, I have to say. I just, possibly because I don't really like Chris Pratt as an actor, which probably didn't help. But I really enjoyed the three women. Against my initial instincts, I did enjoy Rocky as well, because I kind of thought, oh, God, this is going to be like the Marvel version of Scrappy-Doo, an annoying comic foil. But no, I thought, like, I'm taking this raccoon really seriously now. (laughs) I did enjoy their interactions. I really enjoyed their sort of, their awkward relationship with the Avengers in that they're sort of two groups of, two quite, you know, sort of disparate groups of people that are essentially trying to do the same thing but going about it in very different ways and have all sorts of conflicts and almost like not a battle for supremacy because that makes it sound like more than it is but there is that kind of slight well who is actually in charge here and they're all kind of thinking well knowing that they've got to cooperate but not really being quite sure how that's going to work and I found that quite interesting from a character point of view 
I also really liked Drax as well. <laughs> really, really, particularly when he was sort of saying, I've made myself invisible. And they're like, no, no, we, we can see you, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. Despite really disliking Chris Pratt, it did make me think like, well, maybe I should probably watch Guardians of the Galaxy because I'd like to know more about those characters. I mean, I can't really get on board with Groot. I can't invest... He looks a bit like there used to be an advert for I think it was Dreamland Beds where there is a log, sort of a human log. <laughs> that reminds me, I was like, oh, it's, the, it's the log from the Dreamland Beds advert. And I think Gamora and Nebula are brilliant. I think they're fantastic characters. And the snail lady whose name I've forgotten. Mantis. Yeah, well, Mantis. Yeah. I was struck on rewatching it. It's something I'd never really picked up on from the actual Guardians films. Is that when you think about it, there you've got three incredibly attractive. You no, know, you can't say they're known for. Their looks are known for their acting but let's face it they do a lot of magazine shoots between oh them. yeah but yeah, here they're women, completely yeah. covered in prosthetics and given really weird characters to work with and i cannot help but see that as a positive i mean i'm worried that sounds a bit patronizing now no i know what you mean and yeah you're right because you can't really i mean sort of facially they're unrecognizable really you know i know the actors that played them but you would be hard pushed to sort of guess who they were if you did know because there is so much in the way of prosthetics and so much makeup and they are sort of really really odd looking I mean they're still very beautiful they're still wearing like very tight costumes and are sort of you know stunning and all generally have like amazing hair and stuff <laughs> but yeah I do think it's a positive as I say that I mean they're almost unrecognisable really and I do think that's a positive and they are genuinely sort of weird looking and very otherworldly and strange particularly Mantis I think because of those weird sort of antennas genuinely looks very non-human and I was interested in her character generally because I found her the sort of probably the most interesting of the three. Again, not enough to do. She didn't have enough to do, but what she does have to do is brilliant, I think. And now for something you might not have heard. Recently, I joined Stuart McConey on the Freak Zone on BBC Six Music for a chat about BBC records and tapes and my books Top of the Box and Top of the Box Volume 2, available from timworthington.org. And here's what we had to say about the albums based on BBC school show Music Time and a certain static image of a girl and the clown playing noughts and crosses. Catherine Harries and Peter Coombe and an extraordinary track. Tim Worthington, who's my guest today, actually sent me a suggestion, or sent me the album, and it's I just sort of chanced upon that Zoom Galley Galley which Tim do you say you remember singing this at school I do I remember sitting cross-legged in front of that big TV sort of doing that thing where they wouldn't let you clap properly you had to use two fingers against (laughs) the other hand and music time yeah it was based this was the it started off as a very folky program but by the late 70s it had gone into that sort of Peter Gabriel early WOMAD sort of thing which is exactly where some galley galley comes from and they used to have you know they had the music stave on screen and notes would be lit up by very dim bulbs pete winslow and his king size brass space chariots where's this from this is from an album called the girl on the test card <laughs> which the, the whole point of the bbc test card was that the music they played on it wasn't commercially available it was from well libraries like chapel and so on And the thing was, they wanted to do an album to, you know, cash in on the fact that this image was on screen more than programmes were in those days. But they couldn't actually use any of the actual music because of that sort of arrangement. So they got Pete Winslow and his King's Eyes Brass in to record an album's worth of test card music, much of which does have that kind of, you know, mariachi, Tijuana feel yeah. to it. But right at the end, they must have said to him, 
okay, there's what, seven minutes left. You can do whatever you like. <laughs> and he pulls this extraordinary jazz funk thing out of the back. 1985's Now Dance, the first ever spin-off from the Now That's What I Call Music series, is only a slightly less peculiar album, featuring 12-inch extended dance versions of recent chart hits at a time when dance music hadn't really started to exist yet. Recently, I joined Ian McDermott on Back to Now to chat about this album and its mostly long-forgotten contents, but there was one song in particular that I could not wait to talk about. Track seven on this is Clouds Across the Moon by the Ra Band, which I think we have to stop and talk about. I don't know what your opinion will be. I absolutely adore Clouds Across the Moon. I love this track, Tim, to death. And I will say for years and years, you know in the days when... You know, people still used to do compilation tapes for each other. I mean, yeah. The word mixtape did not exist. That's a retrospective invention. That's like nobody called long hair at the back mullets in the 80s. So compilation tapes, which I was originally talking about, more than anything else, I got asked by people, have you got that Clouds Across the Moon record? Can you put yeah. it on a tape for me? Yeah. That was again and again and again. I love this at the time. I love it now. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that it is quite tongue-in-cheek as well. It's evocative of things like the BBC children's sitcom Galloping Galaxies, which is the guy who wrote Rent a Ghost, what he did after that, which is sort of a farce on a spaceship. It's a bit early Red Dwarf, bit Captain Zepp space detective. It's very reminiscent of Doctor Who in the 80s. The hilarious thing was when the Top of the Pops, where they did this, turned up on BBC Four, Dancing alongside them, playing the guy on the other end of the phone intercom thing, yeah. is Chameleon, the real robot they tried to have in Doctor Who in the mid-80s that never worked. And it's oh. obviously been shoved into a cupboard and they thought, help, we need a robot for Top of the Pops. And he actually moves when he's <laughs> with the raw band as well. We went on holiday to Butlins in 1985 and it was on all over the place and it makes me takes me straight back to playing, do you remember Tempest, that arcade game? Oh, yeah. It had the spinny dial and sort of yeah. like fractal vortex. And briefly talking to, there's a slightly older girl there called Yolanda who was dressed a bit like Madonna's looking those open. What you were allowed to do as like a 14-year-old girl. And yeah. that's it's what I associate Clouds Across the Moon with, was that holiday. People pull apart the lyrics and, you know, the line about this crazy war, which makes me think about, do you remember Fears had to, strip called The Adventures of the Human League in Outer Space, where they they stop wars between aliens by playing a pop concert. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it had that introductory frame, it said, Phil, the girls. (laughs) I came across somebody recently who had never heard this song, and I started trying to explain to them, and it's almost unexplainable that this is somebody making a telephone call through an operator to a spaceship to speak to her partner who we're assuming is seeing somebody else in space. Is that right? I don't know. It's not clear. And also I would say the guy who asks them to keep it brief because they might lose the signal goes on a bit when he's saying that. I know. (laughs) Let them speak. I know. It's like, you know, my 10 pences are running out here. (laughs) Making an intergalactic telephone call to their partner and missing them. I mean, it's just mind-blowingly brilliant. It is. And this is... It's not even an extended version because it's the band play on for yep. about four minutes while she sort of sobs and sighs yeah, they basically over have... it. Like she's having a, she's like weeping in the corner of a space pub, drowning her sorrows and all the rimmers at the bar saying, oh, I believe I ordered a drink two minutes ago. <laughs> and there's this jazz funk band just playing in an extended. Yeah. 
solo in the middle of it and then she comes back at the end mm-hmm. and it's it, it's just absolutely fabulous um and it's bizarre that it's the same raw band who did the crunch well this is what i was going to say if you only had two records in your entire <laughs> collection or two records to your name richard mm-hmm. e. Houston, raw band reh and it was the crunch from 1977 which is just like glam rock all rolled into one record and this that's it you could retire happily. And the other very strange thing is that possibly the first thing he did was Richard Hewson. Apologies if I'm sort of Nick Drake explaining here, but he was the first arranger that Nick Drake was paired with. They did a version of I Was Made to Love Magic that sounds a bit like Donovan, and probably Nick Drake hated it and they didn't work together again. But those three things do not sit together on any musical planet, ironically. That's it for this collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. Don't forget you can find the full versions of all of these shows and plenty more besides at timworthington.org. And while you're there, why not help to support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books or buying me a coffee? And yes, I do have a Captain America mug. Right, well, I will happily put this out on Looks Unfamiliar, Tim. I have never been on the receiving end of a custard pie. <laughs> Or anything that purports to be a custard pie, but I would be delighted to be. Treat this as carte blanche. Find me. (laughs) Custard pie me. Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org. Yeah, I'll leave it there. I don't think I've got anything else to uh, add. Except, oh, I said I did say f- for our friend Tim Worthington's sake, I would mention that it w- it was first shown on British TV okay. on Saturday, fourteenth of May, nineteen eighty-eight, on uh, London Weekend Television, so ITV. Yeah. Uh, at eleven oh five p.m. as part of their drive-in movie slot, where it has a funny little. There's a little animated bit of cars driving up to a movie theater that they used to put in front of films. Okay. Um. But yeah, like at 11.05pm, and then all the other ITV regions showed it after midnight. So whenever it's been on TV, it's generally been in the early hours of the morning. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like it's been... Uh, yeah, it's it's not going to gain a, a second following of people who watched it when they were kind of... Oh, and the, the other thing... But it was released in America on the 23rd of October, 1984. Same day the Terminator came out. <laughs> you know, one of those films has got a better legacy than the other. <laughs> oh, imagine. Imagine if you'd only had, you could only go and see one film. <laughs> and you chose. And you had the Terminator to choose from in this. And you went, oh, but it's McCartney. <laughs>